Welcome to The Jewish Diasporist, a podcast explaining the political, social, and cultural implications of life in diaspora. I'm Zach Smerin. And I'm Ben Yenowitz. In our episode about Judaism in Uganda, we mentioned that Zach was in Spain for the annual flagship retreat of the European Union of Jewish Students. In this two-part episode, I will be telling you and Ben about Summer U in dialogue with several interviews I took on-site with attendees from Spain, Turkey, Greece, North Macedonia, Serbia, Norway, and Scotland. These interviews allow us to explore the difficulties of organizing Jewish students in different European contexts, particularly highlighting those in small communities. This is because only by centering on smaller communities can we truly work towards a world where Jewish cultural and communal fulfillment can reach its highest level wherever Jews live. This is important for us as diasporists, because we believe that smaller and larger communities can learn and gain from each other through active regional and transnational dialogue and cooperation. Similar to its British affiliate, EUJS is a mainstream Jewish communal institution. Therefore, it will undoubtedly include many people with whom we won't fully agree with or may adamantly disagree with. However, we believe that it is valuable to engage in the social opportunities that it offers, as well as its democratic processes, even if they have their flaws. They will be discussed in part two, which will come out in a few days. We'd also like to thank Victor, one of our Greek interviewees, for allowing us to use some of his music for the intro of these episodes. We hope you enjoy. at this point we would introduce a guest. However, with this episode, we are going back to our roots, episodes one and two, where this was just the two of us. I realize that some of the people listening might not be regular viewers of ours and will be from different communities whose members were interviewed here, in which case, hello. And I would like to first of all say that when it comes to our interviewees today, they are sharing their views with us here, and they do not necessarily believe in all of the views in which we share our podcasts today. I wouldn't want to get anyone potentially in trouble for the contents of either this episode or any of the other episodes that we publish. I am going to be telling Ben about my experiences at Summer U, because while I was having fun over there, he was working on his dissertation. Oh yeah, starting to come together. I'm looking forward to being done with it, and honestly, we'll probably do an episode about it because it's extremely related, and it's all about the history of socialist diasporism within Ashkenazi communities and the contradictions between them, which is exciting, and I've been enjoying learning, but I'm also excited to learn from you, Zach, because you had a really interesting experience, which I could not go to, but I was excited that you got to and you got to meet people from across Europe. And I'm really interested to hear what they had to say and what you thought of the whole event. And Ben has basically heard nothing about what actually went down at this point. I made an explicit decision to not tell him much about how it happened. He did get some information, but apart from information like, oh my god, these guys are so cool. Oh my god, this is so interesting. It's not much more than that. So how did I end up at Summer U? Keen listeners of the show will remember how at UJS convention, we met two people that came from UJS, Avital Greenberg and Aaron Sarkin. They encouraged to go to a seminar in Vienna 
banner with the Never Again Right Now network, which I will get to a little bit later explaining what that actually is, both through going to the NAN summit as well as experiencing the Jewish Student Union in Austria, about which I have written for Aleph magazine in UJS, link in the description, I decided that it would be interesting to go and see what Summer U is about. I've heard good things about it from all the people involved. Summer U is designed as the annual getaway of Jewish students in Europe organized by EUJS. It is done in a different location every year. This year it was in Malaga in Spain. The cost of it was 429 euros for the early bird tickets. Do you know if they had scholarships for people unable to afford that? I am very glad you asked about that because that is a cost. And of course, if you travel somewhere for a week, that's not going to be cheap especially if that involves going across Europe. And the answer is, as far as I know, no. Costs were flat per participant, which there comes into the question of socioeconomic barriers for students from lower earning families, and also students from countries with lower income, because 429 euros is not as easy to earn in, let's say, Romania as it is in France. And also that 429 euros does not include the flight. You have to get to Malaga on your own. For some people, of course, that is going to be easier than for others, depending on where they are flying from. I was able to make the trip. And so without going into the whole story of how I ended up in Malaga, let's just skip to the part where I am in Malaga. There are people already waiting at Malaga airport from different unions, including some of my friends from the Austrian Union. And there is one of several buses organized by EUJS to take us to the actual location. There were four during the day. So that's very simple. The location is an interesting aspect because the location was not disclosed to us before we arrived there. And we were told to not disclose that location to anyone outside. I assume this was because of anti-Semitism and fears? Yes. It was deemed a secret as a security measure, which I can understand, although it is also a little bit strange to board a bus with a bunch of strangers who tell you that you are not able to contact people on the outside. And even though this information is going to be known by probably hundreds, if not thousands of people at this point, I am not going to disclose anything more than briefly describe how the venue looked and that it was within, let's say, two hours of Malaga. When it comes to the venue itself, it was a youth centre for the kinds of groups that we were, you know, about 300, 400 youth, some area with accommodation. Rooms were between two and four beds, which is nice, and you would generally be placed with people from your country. Apart from the different single-storey buildings where you had different rooms, you had all the kinds of amenities that you would have from a youth centre. You can imagine there was a pool, there was a pitch, there was a stage area where different events and parties were take place there was the mess hall and I'm going to mention that there was food and I'm not going to say anything more about it people who went know exactly what I mean when I speak about eggs it's unfortunately something that you have to keep in mind that the easiest thing to save money on when you're organizing a big convention is the food quality not knocking any of the people that were working there by the way this sounds very interesting and it sounds very similar to the UJS conference that we went. So I was just wondering how the bulk of your time was spent, just because I know 
at the UJS conference, there were a bunch of different programs that were educational and discussion-based. I was wondering if it was similar to that. The atmosphere of Summer U was very relaxed. There was a lot of things that were offered to students. It is actually designed like a summer vacation. You are able to do what you want to do. The schedule is not particularly tight. There are several things that will be happening at the same time when it comes to seminars, and I'll get to those in a bit. But you really do have the possibility to do what you want. If you want to just chat with people, if you want to stay by the pool, if you want to stay in your room, there really isn't any sort of emphasis on what you necessarily have to do. You're able to spend time with people that you know. You're able to spend time with people that you don't know, meeting new people. That's something that was quite noticeable. You had some situations where you had different groups on different countries that would sometimes want to spend time with themselves. And that can, to some extent, create a certain amount of cliqueiness. But it's also something that's difficult to avoid when you're talking about 300, 400 people. Some people will want to speak with people that they haven't seen in a long time in their own language. But generally, everybody spoke English, although at different levels, as is to be expected. One thing that I also like to mention, unlike the UJS convention, which really did take place in the middle of nowhere, it was actually inside of a town. We had about 15 minutes if we wanted to go to shops. So it's not like we were trapped in there and Wi-Fi worked generally. So you might wonder, how was this all organized an event for so many people this takes a lot of preparation and it did of course it was organized by the team of EUJS and there were a few shall we say adults so people that were not there as students or youth but generally speaking there wasn't any sort of parenting or babysitting there was a whole organizing team that we got to see in light blue shirts going around and helping in facilitating everything whether it was from accompanying people from the airport or organizing the different technical areas, they were really what allowed everything to take place. One of these organizers is someone who I met already in Austria, and I would like to introduce to you the first interview today, and that is with Lara. I am Lara Gutmann. I'm 23 years old, born in Argentina, Buenos Aires, and moved to Barcelona, Spain when I was two. Just currently majored in international relations at Barcelona with a minor in foreign policy in the Middle East and North Africa region. I have been involved in Jewish initiatives for 12 years. I would say that something that's relevant about me is that I've worked in the service industry for quite a while, which has definitely shaped my personality and how I just see community and human relations as a whole. And you are, of course, as well engaged with FEHE. Yeah. So FEHE is a relatively new union, if I'm not mistaken. We were created around three years ago, let's say. We officially signed FEHE as a legal entity around 2020, beginning of 2021. That was a difficult time to organize things with the pandemic, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was definitely a struggle. I remember that we started talking about the idea of FEGE right before the pandemic, and then everything just sort of hit. It was about trial and error. I know that Dina, one of the founders, had been wanting to do this for a really long time. And the people that got together are people that were highly motivated to make an impact in the local community. It was definitely a struggle initially because a lot of the things that we could have traditionally done, such as meeting up in person, 
weren't able to. An anecdote I remember fondly from this time is that when we were signing Feje to become a legal entity, because we couldn't meet up, for example, one was living in Madrid at the time, the other one was living in Israel, and then three of us in Barcelona, but even with us, it was quite hard to meet in person. We had to first meet up the people in Barcelona, sign the contract in person, and then ship it off to Israel, and then ship it off to Madrid, and then back to Barcelona. And that's how we were created. The process was definitely super long because it involved a lot of online meetings. And of course, during the pandemic, it wasn't the best time for any of us emotionally or psychologically. I think the creation of Feje, considering the context, is definitely a privilege. I don't take for granted. I still, up to this day, cannot believe how far we've come since our creation only three years ago and how much we've changed, how much we've accomplished, how much love and an overwhelmingly positive response we've received. It's just great. And now you have also been the sort of guest union of this year's yeah. Summer You, right? That must have been a lot of responsibility. How did that process take place? Were you the ones to offer Malaga as a place, to offer Spain as a place to host Summer You? Or was that uh, otherwise? How were you involved in the process of organizing this year's Summer You? That's definitely not something we had, we personally had control over. We did mention it a couple of times because from participants' feedback from the Malaga Summer You in 2019, which was in this exact same venue, Apparently they received an amazing feedback. I wasn't there, but that's what I heard. And we always pushed from Feje to have Summer You Happen again in Spain. Of course, it wasn't something that we knew that we could control. So it was more of a, please let it be in Malaga. And they were like, yeah, yeah, sure. We'll let you know. And then a couple months later, I think that was during March or April this year, we got the news and that was, yeah, it was beautiful. We sort of felt that it was coming because it just made sense on the European landscape, of course, because Spain has the presidency of the Council of the European Union. It made sense politically. But besides from that, yeah, I don't really know what the criteria was. I'm just happy that it is here. I think Spain has so much to offer and I really appreciate that the fact that they've taken the time and the effort to demonstrate and showcase the relevance that Spain has as a cultural, religious and social hub for Judaism all across Europe and beyond. You were involved mm -hmm. as a maker. Yeah. So how did that process happen? How were you one of the people that made all of this event possible? Ooh. I've been wanting to be a maker since the second I knew about EUJS and what summer you was. I've been a madrija, so I've been involved in my youth movement actively in their leadership positions. And what youth movement was that? Initially it was Netzer and then it would change to Noam because the community went through a process from reformist to Masorti. So I was a madrija. I also took leadership positions during my youth movement, meaning that I had created, I had been part of the organization and the planning of different mahanot, different summer and winter camps for my youth movement. It's something that I really like. I love planning events in general. Back in 2019, when Summer You was done in Malaga, a couple of the other makers that are here right now, again as makers, told me, oh yeah, you two should definitely come. It, it seems like an amazing opportunity. You could be a maker, which basically means that you're in charge of organizing the event and shaping it as best as you can. But during that time, again, I was working as a waitress like I've always done so I couldn't and then I wanted to apply for the following ones on 2021 and 2022 but I have always been someone that was sort of moving around the world with different jobs and in different areas in different countries so I wasn't able to dedicate my life fully to that and this year it sort of felt like everything came together I got the opportunity I applied I went through the selection process which consists of a couple questions and interview and I got in and the process has been actually really amazing 
amazing. I got to work with, again, I love UJS. I just love these spaces. I know that we create such amazing community and such amazing connections between different individuals that you wouldn't be able to meet if it weren't because we are all here under the same objective and the same values or not even the same values, but just trying to figure it out together. It's been beautiful. I met with an amazing team. We work great together, I would say. Everything's very constructive and very positive and proactive. We just help each other out. You can sort of choose what you want to be involved in depending on your own personal interest, which I find that's amazing. So you're not really assigned to a specific role, but more of you have a certain set of strengths, then you can take advantage of them here and you can actually reinforce those strengths, which is something that I really appreciate for the organization to do. I'm really, really proud of our union. I know we have a lot of issues to overcome. We have a lot of struggles and a lot of battles to fight yet. But this week has demonstrated that there truly are people that are willing to help, that are willing to lend a hand, that are willing to create a community that's not for themselves to appreciate only, but more to share with everyone else and to create a collective environment by which everyone can enrich themselves and their identities. And really, there's nothing else that I want I thought that was a really interesting interview. I hadn't heard it until we just listened to it. But I think it's so different from the kind of perspective I got from the UJS. Maybe it's just when you're in an institution, there's an air of like timelessness or like, oh, we're here now. So it's kind of always been this way. But I think what Laura really brought forward is that there really is a lot of actual organizing that goes into creating this stuff. This isn't something that just exists out of nowhere. This is existing. Everything that does exist exists because people put the love and time and effort into actually making these spaces which is so important because like she was saying at the end these are spaces that people can really grow and build community and develop their Jewish identities in and these aren't things that people just are given I think a lot of American Jews were privileged in the sense that we have strong communal organizations but that's just not the case in most places so I think it's really wonderful to hear Lara's passion for doing this sort of work and also it's interesting that you guys chose to do it in Spain and in Malaga of all places because there is such a long and rich Jewish history in Spain and Malaga in particular. I was wondering, did you guys talk about the significance of Spain and Malaga in Jewish history at all? Yes, yes, it was something that did come across that we are in Al-Andalus. On one day, there were four trips that were organized into different locations. One was to the city of Malaga itself, two were to other places, which I can't remember at this point, and the one that I went on was to Granada. I love Granada. Granada is an amazing place. I had been there a few years ago. I actually went to Al Alhambra, which this time I largely skipped, and we were in the city of Granada, which is at the foot of the actual castle itself. And we had actually a Jewish tour guide who was able to explain us the Jewish significance and interesting areas in the city, which was something that was very much appreciated. And this is something that our next interviewee will be speaking about. Before I go to that, I want to say a little bit about how seminars were constructed. Like with UJS Convention, and pardon us for making the constant references to UJS, this is because of our experiences. But when it comes to the way in which seminars functioned, there were several different speakers that were invited from organizations outside of EUJS. So for example, you had the ADL to learn about extremist symbols, I believe. There was a Israeli human rights organization that I can't remember the name of. But there was also, for example, Zekolel, the diasporic learning group, which was interesting to speak over there as one of the few officially diasporist people there that identified as such. Did you guys approach any of the more, uh, 
let's say, uh, heated discussions within Jewish politics and society. There were several discussions pertaining to Israel. There was one discussion actually about the IHRA definition, which was very interesting because EUJS officially supports the IHRA definition via motion and policy. And EUJS, when it comes to official indicators, is committed to combating anti-Zionism and to combating BDS. And in several countries in Europe, calling for BDS is actually against the law under certain circumstances. Was there any sort of more critical discussion of those policies? So that's the interesting thing. When it came to the IHRA discussion, there was actually very open in terms of not just displaying what the IHRA is about, but also talking about the Jerusalem Declaration as a model and not dismissing it in opposition right away, as well as the recent Nexus guidelines, I believe. But it was the room for open discussion. Not to be uh, controversial, but was there anyone saying that maybe we should not be dealing with anti-Semitism through legislative definitions? And was there any discussion about the limit limitations of that sort of approach? There was discussions about the limitations of it, but I would not say that there was an active far left equivalent to a lot of the discussions as they are within England and the United States. It's quite interesting in the continental European context that a lot of the discussions that take place within UJS are considered further to the left than, for example, France or Germany. But within these organisations like EUJS, you have a lot more people that are explicitly left-wing and identifying as such, and also very strongly coming out against the far right in a way that is not as common within mainstream communal institutions in Britain, at least from my experience, as the primary threat. So it's quite idiosyncratic in that way, or at least there's certain contradictions there that are not resolved to use some very uncharacteristic jargon for me. It sounds similar to just the general center-left atmosphere of Jewish communities that I've been in in the US, where we are clearly against fascism. That's not something that anyone's really debating. It's more of just the bigger questions when it comes to how we secure Jewish safety at home and across the diaspora that that becomes more contentious. I will come further to the discussions on policy and decision making within EUJS further down the line. For now, I would just like to say that apart from these organizations that came to speak, I'm not sure exactly how the processes went, there were also several makers, organizers, who themselves prepared different kinds of events and discussions. These ranged very much. So for example, one maker from Poland, and there were several of us from Poland, organized a judo session. There was one already mentioned before about the IHRA. And these sessions would take place at the same time around the venue, although there would be fewer than eight at a single time. There would be around two, three, four. One thing that I like to do actually is to go in between the different sessions, because some of them were hosted outside. Some were hosted in closed rooms, and so that's a little bit more awkward when you have to enter a room and exit. But if it's just different groups of people around the place, that's something that you can really just go around and see what's happening at certain times. And one of those sessions that really I remembered very fondly was the Ladino singing session, which was organized by Eyal, one of the makers from Turkey, who I managed to get afterwards to sit down and talk to me for a bit. I'm Eyal. I was born and raised in Turkey, in Izmir. I also lived in Istanbul for five years during my high school years. For the last four years, I've been living in the Netherlands for my university degree. Last year, I graduated from psychology and currently I'm studying a research master on clinical psychology. And what was that experience like growing up in Turkey? It was complex, I'd say. Growing up in Turkey, it was wonderful. You know, the weather is great, the food is great. I mean, I grew up by the sea. People are very warm, very kind, very hospitable. Do you feel that there is a difference between the communities in Izmir and in Istanbul? 
there definitely is a difference between the communities of Izmir and Istanbul, simply because Jewish life is not very active in Izmir. We have very few people. When I was growing up, we had about 1,000, maybe 1,100 people. Now it's down to nine to 800 people most of which is elderly. I remember when I was a kid, we had something called the Sunday school, which was Fridays after school had ended. We would go to the community center to learn, do Jewish studies, essentially, for like an hour or two, maybe. That was really it in terms of Jewish life, besides the synagogue, obviously, and the holiday celebrations. Whereas in Istanbul, there is still an active Jewish school. So the life there is much more different. It's much more centralized. It's so interesting to hear about a community that, whether it is in Poland or the English-speaking world, we think about communities in the Middle East and North Africa as no longer existing in any way. Do you feel that your existence as a Turkish Jewish community is surprising to outsiders? Quite often when I tell people that I'm from Poland and not just that my family is from Poland, but that I grew up there, I get people that are surprised that there are Jews left in Poland at all. Do you get similar reactions? For sure. Like all the time, people often ask me if I have just ancestry in Turkey or if I grew up there. If so, they immediately think, ah, Istanbul. It's like, no, not even in Istanbul, in Izmir, which is the second largest community, but nevertheless, very small. But yeah, I feel like especially with Turkey, there's a lot of surprise because it is a Middle Eastern country, but it kind of defies the general narrative of the Middle East during the 20th century, meaning that after 48, the Jews living in Arab lands and also later in Iran, they were expelled or they had to leave and you see this mass immigration from these countries either back to Israel or elsewhere but we did not really have that in Turkey even though the community numbers diminished significantly from around 150,000 Jews living in Turkey about 100 years ago to about 15,000 today we had our own hardships but there was never a forced expulsion from Turkey but when also in Israel and also in America when people think about the men of Jews they think okay that chapter ended now the only Middle Eastern country that has Jews in it and active Jewish life is Israel. I think this is why people are very surprised. How do you view the future of the Jewish community in Turkey? Are you personally thinking yourself of returning to the country? That's a very good question and a big dilemma of mine, to be honest. As I said, I loved growing up in Turkey. I loved Izmir especially, but I was also away from Izmir for a long time, currently now about nine years. And when I go back, you know, like when you're living somewhere, you don't really recognize the changes that much. But when you leave it for a period of time and come back later, it hits you really hard. And I can see that both the community and also the Izmir city at large is not the city that I grew up in anymore. And as for Istanbul, I never really enjoyed my time in Istanbul because of personal reasons. So it is a big question for me. Do I go back? If I go back, I do not want to go back to Istanbul. I would want to go back to Izmir. But now I'm questioning whether there will be a Jewish life in Izmir in 20 years this kind of centralization of Jewish life around only the bigger cities and moving away from smaller communities. We can see a similar pattern in Poland when it comes to the communities existing in Krakow and in Warsaw and not so much anywhere else. And the question of whether that can be either reversed or stopped and to be able to nurture life in smaller cities as well. You have not just come to summer you as just a visitor. You are a maker. You're involved in the organizing process. How did that come up for you? Have you been to summer you before? I've never been to summer you. In fact, I've never even heard about neither summer you nor EUJS until last April, I believe. As I mentioned, I'm currently living in the Netherlands. For the past few years, I've been somewhat active in the Jewish community in the Netherlands, specifically in Leiden and The Hague. I met a friend who happened to had started working at UGS a year earlier, and she was sending links for volunteering to be a maker at Summer U. And I happened to be in one of those group chats that she sent them. And I thought about it. It seemed interesting. I didn't know anything about it, but it seemed fun. So I signed up and got in. It's very different experience 
experience. It's very interesting to see Jewish life throughout Europe be so active and be so open, engaged, connected with each other. It's a very different reality than the reality that we had in Turkey. And you led a session on Ladino songs. Would you like to say a little bit about Ladino? Because we haven't mentioned that on our podcast at all yet. What does Ladino mean to you? I love that question. Thank you for that. Ladino, for those who don't know, is the language of the Sephardi Jews who were expelled from Spain and Portugal and settled in the Ottoman Empire. It's strictly an Ottoman language. The Sephardi Jews who chose to go to Europe, primarily the Netherlands or England, are not speaking Ladino. It's essentially the combination of local Judeo-Iberian dialects into one because there were Jews living throughout Iberia and they were all expelled together. At least a good portion of them were expelled into the Ottoman Empire. They all melted into each other. We had later immigration from Portugal, Italy, France, and also we had existing Jewish communities that spoke different languages. We had great influence of Arabic while Jews were still living in Spain before the Reconquista. So the Judeo-Iberian languages that were spoken already had an influence of Arabic, to my knowledge at least. And also, of course, they had influence of Hebrew and Aramaic. And once the Jews arrived in the Ottoman Empire and these dialects sort of melted into one another, through time they also started interacting with other local people like the Turkish people, the Greek people, different peoples living in the Balkans, the Arabs living on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, Kurds, the Armenians, and so on. And through these interactions, we gained a very, very rich vocabulary. Essentially, it's like medieval Spanish, different pronunciation with a very Middle Eastern twist. And you led a session on it. I unfortunately only caught the very end of that, for which I feel very bad. <laughs> But it was really amazing, I have to say, to be able to sing some of these songs in a group setting. For me, I am learning Yiddish. I very much believe that kind of linguistic engagement is something that should be still maintained and nourished in our diasporic communities. And it's very interesting to hear from that other perspective. Part of the involvement at Summer U for you is to be the Turkish representative at the General Assembly and the democratic decision-making processes of EUJS. What is the situation like for Turkish Jewish students in terms of a union or recognition? And how do you believe that the current discussions that have taken place this morning in the motion decision-making process are relevant to your communities? Well, that's a loaded question. Um... First of all, the Jewish student communities in Turkey, they are very decentralized. They are very, like there are three main communities, two located in Istanbul, one in Izmir. The community in Izmir is now more international oriented, meaning that they are engaged in BBYO, but also I believe with Junction. They had in the past and hopefully in the future events with other Balkan communities. Whereas Istanbul is more local, but still my experience of the two communities in Istanbul was that they are caught up in, not a fight, but kind of like competition between each And I think that is the biggest challenge for Turkey to have a union of Jewish students because more than 90% of the Jews of Turkey live in Istanbul. So if we have a community, if we have a union, it will be based in Istanbul. But the communities, the youth communities are very decentralized. So that is one challenge. And today at the General Assembly, there were quite a few motions or topics that were discussed that relate to the Jewish community in Turkey. Perhaps because, you know, there were issues about raising awareness of anti-Semitism with adoption of the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, which would be very relevant in Turkey as well. How that would be implicated, that's something else, but it would be influential. But there were also certain issues that regarded Turkey less, I would say. For instance, there was a motion or repassing of a motion about the unions within EUJS representing common European values, which obviously leaves Turkey out because Turkey is a Middle Eastern country, not a European country. There were points where Turkey seemed to an extent irrelevant. There were points where Turkey was also concerned. And 
point. There were points where Turkey stands on thin ice, I would say, especially topics surrounding Israel and Zionism, considering the political climate in Turkey. But nevertheless, I'm hopeful. I really hope and I really am motivated to do what it takes and get something started at least. And we'll see. If I should give a shout out, that would be to you, Jess, and some of you for giving me this platform and allowing me to meet Zach, <laughs> who approached me for this podcast, which I feel very honored for. That's really interesting. Yeah, I'm really intrigued by the fact that you were able to bring up the question of Ladino because that's not something people talk about. I remember when there's like the one song, Ocho Candelicas, that they'll sing in Ladino and then they just basically say it's Spanish and don't really emphasize that no, this is a language that emerged through the wave of Sephardi diaspora after the Spanish Inquisition and Ottoman Empire. Honestly, I didn't realize Ladino emerged in the Ottoman Empire. And it really raises a lot of questions about how you can organize in a place like that where you have a central city where most Jews live and then you have smaller outlying communities and how can those communities maintain their own autonomy and also be part of a broader communal structure? I think that's a really big question that is not easy to answer at all. Because you have different motivations within the community. It can be within the interests of the capital city community to bring in as many people and thus undermine in a way the smaller communities. That could be rational by pooling of resources or having more people together closer but it's tricky. I think there's also something to be said about the kind of way that that plays out at like a more zoomed out scale where you do have most like what is it 70% of the Jewish diaspora if we don't include Israel Palestine as part of it are in the US and it's like how can we organize internationally without subsuming everything into a US centered worldview and I think that's kind of a microcosm of that dynamic it's not something that is just easy to do I also think it's really interesting from what what I picked up, there's no Turkish student union. He was just kind of there on his own. The Turkish Jewish student delegation was able to petition EUJS despite not having a union just yet. They were able to present a united delegation and they received votes and were able to be represented at the conference. Something which is very good to see and hopefully that will continue further on down the line. I also think it's interesting how he got involved while in the Netherlands because I think it adds another layer to when we talk about diasporism. You can be from the Jewish diaspora while he's also essentially from a Turkish diaspora. And I think the question you asked him about, do you want to go back to Turkey? And the question of like, yes, but also no, and it's kind of complicated. I think that's something that is super important as diasporists to think about because there's more than one layer of diaspora often within Jewish stories. And I think there's something that's very interesting to be said about how we actually engage with the various different places that we might consider our homelands. And this is something that I think has a lot of different layers and for every single individual with their own family histories is going to have a different sort of relationship and a different answer. So I think it's really exciting that you were able to talk to him because he seems like a very knowledgeable person that is involved in some important organizing. I mean, I can certainly resonate with that as well myself. For me, it was in that way in which I was able to really connect to it. Jewish community by coming to Britain to being for the first time around a group of peers of my age, community, people that grew up Jewish 
English and the question of do you stay or, or do you go back? Uh, where's home? This is very difficult. Aside from such lovely events as singing Ladino, some events were specifically designed to help smaller unions advertise themselves called union hours and there were all sorts of different unions that used this opportunity to advertise. One of them was the Greek Union represented by Eliezer Solomon and Victor. And I would just like to say before I show you the interview that these were some of the nicest people that I have ever met and this is something that was a common topic at Summer U. So I'm very happy that I was able to speak with them. This is the only interview that we have today that has two people. My name is Eliezer Solomon Campelis. I am from Larissa, which is a small city in Greece. I'm studying electrical and computer engineer. I am the president of Jewish Youth of Greece. And hi everyone, my name is Victor Moises. I am soon to be 26. I am from Thessaloniki, but for the past year or so, I have been living in Larissa, two minutes from where Solomon lives. I serve as the Jewish educator of the Jewish community of Larissa. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the Jewish community in Greece? Nowadays, approximately five thousand Jews live in Greece in nine Jewish communities Athens, Thessaloniki and Larissa and also smallest communities such as Ioannina, Volos, Trikala, Halkis, Corfu and Rhodes. The Jews of Greece are for the most part Sephardic. The vast majority of them arrived because of the expulsion of the Sephardic Jews in 1492 from the Iberian Peninsula. There is a small majority which are Romaniot. The Romaniots are those that pre-existed the arrival of the Sephardics. They have a very unique culture and they speak Yavanic, Judeo-Greek. They have their own set of traditions, their own style of synagogues and their own unique food. And culture is all about food, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Both of you are at Summer U. How have you been finding it so far and how is it relevant to the kind of community building that you are organizing? We are here because we want to meet new people, to learn from other communities, from other unions, to bring also our tradition, to know that there are Jews in Greece. And it's important for us to be here and it's really enjoyable. We've actually been finding it quite lovely. It's very inspiring to see that there are so many very active and very dedicated Jewish activists all around Europe that care so deeply for their Jewish communities. We find it very interesting, very inspiring. Part of the reason why we came here is because we want to connect with them, to connect uh, our people with their people and to do interesting activities. Also because, as Eliezer Solomon said, our communities have a rich background, rich tradition. We have some wonderful people, but especially since COVID, we haven't been done any favors and we're really trying to build this back together again. I believe that we can benefit from interaction with European Jewry as well as European Jewry can benefit from the interaction with us. Have you been doing any cooperation with some of the unions that are a bit closer to you? Actually, one of the beauties of the past few days is that there have been so many inspirations and so many ideas going forward, so many talks, both in formal and less formal contexts. So soon to be announced, stay tuned and all that jazz, and, you know, all, that, all that stuff that they usually say, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, for sure. We had uh, amazing conversations with Mediterraneans and the Balkans and we are planning to do something. I think that it's the most wonderful thing to be here with them and to discuss about our future. Because that's what it is about. It's about future. It's about continuation. Life. Are any of you involved in any other initiatives that you would like to tell us about? Apart from my involvement of ENE, of the Jewish Youth of Greece, which I decided to run for the elections less than 12 hours before the elections actually started. <laughs> Aside from that, as I told you, I am a Jewish educator in Larissa. I'm trying to keep together the very powerful bonds that characterize this community, that have always characterized 
characterized this community. As I said, I'm trying to connect and unite the people under this common thing that we are. I try to bring music into this as well because I'm also a musician. I believe that language, food and music are very powerful vehicles of culture. I'm really trying to work with these tools to really have as much of an impact as possible. There will be a link to Victor's Spotify in the description. <laughs> Thank you. Anywhere else? This is not Jewish related. Like I recorded some music of my own just in my living room. <laughs> it's available on Spotify, YouTube, Deezer, Tidal and Bandcamp. I'm involved in other projects such as the founding project that we run to my community in Larissa. We have a synagogue and we try to renovate it. For that reason, we made a fundraising campaign and also a video for for that it's really important for such a small community to have their own synagogue and to bring back the light of our Jewish life Amazing. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I would just like to point out how significant the work of this podcast is. And we really believe that it will eventually be heard by many more people. And for this project, we have as much of a significant impact as possible. Thank you very much. Wow, they seem lovely. I thought that was super interesting, the point about regional unions and such, because in the U.S., the youth group I grew up with, which was called NIFTI, the North American Federation of Temple Youth, Reformed Jewish Youth Group, organized with different regions. So like we were in the Central West, which was Central California, Northern California, Nevada, Oregon, even like Hawaii. So it was organized regionally. And sometimes these regions would come together. And it's interesting thinking about NIFTI versus EUJS, different contexts, a little bit different communally. But it's interesting as sort of prospects for going beyond the national level in EUJS especially between countries like Greece and the Balkans and Turkey, where you're relatively small communities, but you can come together and really build that unified Jewish identity in those spaces. And I think there's very few opportunities to do that. So I'm really grateful to see that EUJS was able to provide that opportunity to network with one another and build those bridges. Because I can imagine for a small community like in Greece or in Macedonia, I can imagine that it's quite hard to generate a strong Jewish identity, but having those connections transnationally could probably be hugely important for that. And that kind of connection is not just something that is a difficulty that is encountered between smaller communities, because the two largest communities in Europe are in England and France. Yes, they are separated by a channel, but at the student level, certainly, much more could be done than is currently done to connect these two different communities. Some things can be done online. You could use the fact that there are a lot of French Jewish students in Britain, and there are British Jewish students in France, but this is something that's not really done nearly as much as it could be. It also brings to the point of what he said about language, food, and music, because when we think about culture, there's many different types of culture, and language is one of them. And it's not so much that we have our own Jewish languages in the diaspora anymore. Most of us don't speak Yiddish, most of us don't speak Ladino. Some do, and it can be really meaningful to connect with that language history and that language culture, but for the most part, we are speaking English, or we're speaking French, or we're speaking the languages that we're raised with in the communities we're from. So I do think it's interesting to think about the language barrier that can often make it difficult to organize transnationally and think about how we can try to overcome it. And of course, food and music, I think, do play a role in that. 
I also thought it was interesting that he brings up the COVID difficulty because because Lara made the point about how during COVID they actively started organizing. And for the most part, existing unions have had a really hard time with COVID. They've actually really had to reduce what they're doing. It's really thrown a wrench in a lot of their plans. It's not defunct, but Nifty has extremely downsized since COVID because they weren't able to do in-person events that breaks up the continuity that makes it so vibrant. So the community becomes smaller and now they're trying to rebuild. That's a really difficult thing to do. So I do think it's really interesting to think about and see the different responses to the way that people are organizing and trying to rebuild or build for the first time in the midst of COVID. I think it actually perhaps represents a really big mark of change that we're going through in the aftermath of COVID, which is this sort of reckoning of having to rebuild from the things that have been damaged, but also think about the fact that there are new opportunities for the types of communities we want to build. And we have to do that. We have to take action if we want to make these things last. Since you mentioned food, I would add another form of culture that could certainly be used more is sport. Sports are able to break the national barrier. And when it comes to these communities, everybody at some of you spoke English, though, of course, speaking English to different degrees, and it was easier for some than for others. So there should be also possibilities to organize these sorts of events within all the different communal languages as part of a diversity of Jewish expression. Although sometimes that will depend. Some of these smaller communities have a lot of people that are there as students or expats, so they won't necessarily speak the regional language. So I remember, for example, the Portuguese Union. Most of the Jewish students and youth in Portugal do not speak Portuguese, so most of their events happen in English. We will leave our two favourite Greeks for now and head a little bit north to visit a community that was one of the smaller communities at Summer U. Let's speak for a bit about North Macedonia. Rebecca was the representative, president of the Macedonian Union, and she was invited along with a few other presidents of different countries to a panel organized by, and it is brothers at this stage, are brothers in arms against background noise, Mate and Ilan from the Lowdown podcast, which is the podcast of the European Union of Jewish Students. They have been going on for a few months as well. This panel that they hosted was a form of doing the podcast live. However, it seems as of the 12th of September, we are going to beat them in terms of publishing. We know that editing takes a lot of work and we respect that. That podcast should be coming out soon and apart from the presidents of France and Italy whose voices are heard there, there is also the voice of the Jewish Union of Denmark and we would highly recommend anyone who would like to learn more about the Danish community which is also quite small to listen to that in particular when it comes out as well as to the voice of Rebecca who speaks about the Macedonian community and has been asked a lot of questions. I caught up with Rebecca right after that episode was recorded and asked her some questions about what she said there to follow up on. You were just on the President's Unite panel a moment ago. How do you feel after it? I felt very proud to be able to have this opportunity to share my story, my union story, the story of our community that is not very well known. I wanted to ask a little bit about Presence Unite as a group. It's supposed to be, in my understanding, a regular meeting space for presidents of the various unions organized by EUJS that is able to collaborate throughout the year and not just in-person meetings. What is it like to participate in those meetings, especially as someone from the Macedonian Union? Are the questions that are usually raised there relevant to you? Are you able to make your points come across when relevant? So since being elected as the president of the Macedonian Jewish Union, 
I've had the opportunity to go to only one President's Unite, which was the one in Tel Aviv on the AJC Global Forum. And for me, that was one of the most impactful things UAJS could have done because it was so wonderful to just sit down in a room full of people who we all kind of struggle with the same things and just to hear the other perspective, the other point of view on problems we both share was so meaningful for me because after President's Unite, I came back home and I realized how I can target the problems I couldn't find a solution to. So it's very impactful. Regarding the Macedonian Union itself, it's not a student union exclusively, it's a youth union. Yes. And from what you mentioned, it has members from 18 to 35 years old officially. That's very interesting in comparison to, for example, the Union of Jewish Students, where a lot of the members are even quite a bit younger than most of the people here at Summer U. But certainly people at the ages of 19 and 32 will have different interests and different ways of engagement a lot of the time. So how do you manage that? Is that something that comes up as a problem or a challenge? Yes, we do struggle a lot with getting the older part of this age gap come to our programs or sessions. It's a problem we're currently targeting. One of the solutions we really want to try out is we want to get a volunteer from that group who's going to be a coordinator from 28 to 35 on that age group. So they're going to coordinate that group, work parallel with me and with the other group 18 to 28. Together, we're trying to just get people from both sides come. And when it comes to cooperation, Macedonia is a former country of Yugoslavia and also located in the southern part of the Balkans. We're quite far away from any large Jewish community, whether it be in Hungary or Italy. What kind of cooperation are you able to have, whether it is in the former countries of Yugoslavia or Greece? Do you see possibilities there? Were you involved in the Union Accelerator that EUJS did for the Balkans in Croatia? Yes, I was involved in the Union Accelerator, which actually kickstarted everything we're doing right now. Besides the Union Accelerator, we went to the Balkan Multipliers, organized by Junction JDC, where we gathered communities from the ex-Yugoslav, plus Greece and Turkey and Bulgaria. Together, we want to make a Balkan network. We're in the process of doing it. It's called Haida, which is a Balkan term that basically means Yala, but in, uh. but in a common Balkan language. Yeah. Yeah. We're building that network right now. We want to help each other out because we share the same problems pretty much. We struggle with the same things and we saw we could push each other further and help each other. So it's very important. When you spoke, you highlighted both the situation within the Macedonian Jewish community in terms of how you are able to cooperate and organize within that space, as well as the question of help from the outside. What are specific ways in which you believe that assistance could be done in order to continue the revitalization of the Macedonian Jewish community so that it does not so disappear. So the problem is the ignorance and lack of resources currently. Thankfully, UJS has been very open to us, very accepting, and we had the privilege to meet other unions and other leaders of those unions who struggled in the past with this, overcame it, and now are ready to come and help. And when I say resources, of course, financial resources come into play, but it's not all in the finances. It's more in that we need to Jewish educators. We need people who are going to volunteer, people who are going to educate, people who will come and share their story, lead a session. Just come, be present and show their support. So that's something we're currently trying to target and get, especially on the next event we're going to do. Next year we're planning on doing a Shabbaton in Macedonia because we want to open ourselves up to Europe for people to come to see us, to meet us, to see our reality. Just get to know us, get to know our small community.
The Macedonian, or rather should I say the North Macedonian Jewish community, numbers officially, and we know what it's like with official numbers of Jewish communities, but it numbers officially at around 200 people. For our American viewers, that is equivalent to the Jewish community of South Dakota which tells you a little bit about the resources which are on site in such a place. And that really makes you think about, even for me, you know, we say in Poland that the community is very small. And of course, it's perfectly reasonable to say that it's very small, but it's not that small. And we are able to very much support certain activities on our own. Of course, there's a lot of financial assistance that comes from the United States. But we are talking here about a community that numbers already around 15,000 people. So it's particularly important, I think, for us to recognize the difficulties that come in organizing in such a manner. And also recognize that when you are in a communal place like that, even in communities that are a bit larger, you really do have to consider every opportunity that you have well, because the fact that you you're even on the radar, that you are invited to certain places, that you're able to raise your voice, is a big factor in that way. And I'll just caution listeners who might be a bit skeptical or feel a bit of discomfort about, for example, taking money from the Lauda Foundation and the World Jewish Congress, or about events which are only able to connect people when they are in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, because this is the kind of environment that we have to work in in a lot of these communities. I also think it's important when we think about what diasporism actually means in practice, when it means us as diaspora Jews engaging with other communities across the diaspora and trying to support them and help them in any way we can. I think what Rebecca said about needing resources that aren't just financial is really important. We need Jewish educators. We need people that can be active in their communities. And of course, this isn't something that we can just impose on people. It sounds like they're doing a really good job with what they have to be able to build this community, build the leadership they need, and get the resources they need otherwise. But it really comes down to building the bridges, because if we actually have these relationships with people across the world and different communities across our diaspora, I do think we're able to build a stronger sense of Jewish identity and have the conversations that need to be had because often the people that are willing to give you the money and resources have an agenda of their own. And we have to be able to help people to be able to look for their own communities and really root themselves where they live and as Jews, of course, and really be able to figure out what it means to be a Jew in Greece or in Macedonia or in Turkey to people at an individual level because Jewish identity is extremely personal and communal. It's not something that is just a national identity. It's also something that we should be consistent about, right? It's very easy to say that we have a community here. We have communities locally that we can engage with if we live in Paris or London or New York. And there are a lot of opportunities that already exist and we don't need to think about setting up anything from scratch. But the real test, I think, comes when you have communities numbering in the triple digits and you have to really work in every way. And it is really a struggle because you don't know if you're not going to to do something, then will it be done? And if we are to be, you know, for a principled diasporist framework, we'll say that even these very small communities, relatively speaking, should be ones that are given the most kind of assistance. And it's not just a question of numbers, it's also resources, the attitude of the government, the location. Something that we haven't mentioned yet when it comes to possibilities of these communities to integrate is how easy it is to travel between these different countries, right? This is just one of the many ways in which questions around building Jewish communities in 
diaspora touches upon general socioeconomic problems that touch all of us. Access to good infrastructure, to resources, to forms of cultural expression, lack of opposition at least from the government, possibility of disposable income and free time to be able to come to some of you. This isn't something that is easily available to people in many, many countries. And so in this way, you can see very much how specific actions within a Jewish communal setting can also become intertwined with general societal demands for change. Also, I think speaks to the importance of genuine community organizing, because if you have a community of 300 people, you really need to be able to actually bring people in and help people feel like they're included within this Jewish community, because with a community that small, it, like it is a community, you have the chance to potentially know 80, 90, 100% of the Jews in the country. So I do think it's very interesting to think about what can be done at like a really local level and how impactful that is on the broader community in any one place. We are going to be moving further north, Serbia. Hi, my name is Noah. I'm a representative of the Serbian Union of Jewish Youth, now trying to be re-established as an actual union. This year, that is actually our main goal. It's one of the reasons why we're in such a big number at Summer U. The way we're planning on doing this is actually through a project that I'm doing with a lot of fellowship this year, which is trying to establish that a smaller union has the same amount of power as big unions and should be recognized equally, especially as someone from the former Yugoslavian region. It's very hard to get a certain amount of people as members and to get them interested in, so that is actually our aim for this year. How did you become involved with the Lauda Fellowship? What was involved with the whole process? I found out about the fellowship through a family friend because he works very closely with the WJC. It just felt like the next natural step because I've always wanted to have this period of time where you could still be involved in Jewish activities after high school and before you reach the age of 40 when they actually recognize you again as a member. <laughs> so there was this big gap that no one really wanted to be involved because after high school, people just lost interest. And this was, I think, a sign that this is the step needed to be taken to achieve this middle part to be also important. What sort of events and ideas do you have for Jewish youth in Serbia? How do you aim to popularize that missing link within the community? Currently, we have a lot of events, but they're mainly in Belgrade. They're totally focused on bigger cities where smaller communities also don't have really the right of passage. We're trying to be very inclusive, but there's also the point of travel and everyone's timeline, so it's very difficult. But what we're going to try and do is make a circular turn of events that every single community can do something or something that goes into their favor. So if a lot more people are okay with being in Belgrade and the most events are held in the capital, then that is something we'll be focusing on. The point is that everything is available to everybody that wants to be involved. Serbia comes from a very particular context of the Balkans and the former Yugoslavia, which united several other countries that are now independent states. Many people within these countries can trace their roots across these different borders. You yourself have some Croatian ancestry. How does that impact the different Jewish communities? Do you believe that there are significant differences that do not allow for much cooperation between them? Do you think that they can be surmounted? And if so, how do you imagine that that could take place? It's very interesting that you brought up ancestry because it is something that's very, very particular for the Balkans. After the 90s, you could really feel in the Jewish communities that people stopped really caring about who is from where. Because after all the wars we had, after the difficulties of Yugoslavia especially, all the communities specified that they're Jewish and they wanted to work together. My entire childhood was spent in Croatia, going back and forth for summer camps, any seminars, activities. So you could really see that there was no gap between us and other countries. Now, when you look at it and what we're striving towards is the fact that 
when one union from the former Yugoslavian region starts standing on its feet stably as a union, we want to push other unions with us. Politically speaking, it's still sometimes a rough time, but in actuality, between unions and specifically looking at Judaism, you can really feel it that much. We have so many marriages between different countries that were so unlikely to happen because of, let's say, politics. It's really a completely different spectrum. You mentioned before that you have a strong representation here at Summer U. You might have the largest representation in terms of your country's Jewish population. What do you imagine EUJS as an organization can do to facilitate this process? I know that there was a movement accelerator that was held in Croatia recently, but what do you think in terms of the internal processes of EUJS with the General Assembly that's now finished? How do you think that that is relevant to these communities that you are describing? The Union Accelerator was, I think, a very important part about UGS really investing into smaller unions, especially in Eastern Europe. But what we discovered is that we don't naturally fit into this mold that Western unions have. We don't have as many members. We have different problems and in bigger numbers than other unions. But I think the first step that we actually took is them listening to us and understanding that we have to do certain things on our own in order to be a part of them. All in all, what UGS is also doing with grants and the way they're approaching us and giving us certain amounts of space to explain also what our troubles are is a really good step. It's not a big step, but not everything could be done in such a short time, especially considering our situations. And again, you mentioned there were many different countries. We had North Macedonia, we had Croatia, Bosnia was also there. What was very interesting to see is that a lot of our struggles are the same, but not everyone is taking the same measures into conquering them. So I think after especially talking at the GA, a lot of smaller communities also expressed the need to be more active, but others were kind of happy with just being present in certain situations. We have just started. Considering all the support we're getting, I think we're going to go very, very far in the coming year. I think the movement accelerator that they hosted sounds very important because Yugoslavia in the last 30 years, it's a country that's been torn apart by ethnic conflict. And I think it's very interesting that Jews in the region can and are overcoming these ethnic divides. I think what you said about people's origins becoming kind of secondary to people's Jewish identities in this context is very interesting. I think it shows the kind of role that Jews can play in kind of overcoming these ethnic divides. And it also speaks to the difficulties of doing that. I think what she said about the political divides making things difficult, but nonetheless, at a communal level, at the grassroots level, you can make these relationships. And I think that can play a really important role in actually building peace and solidarity across borders, because there's not a lot of communities that have that inherent in the community's structure in the way that our demographics are spread throughout the world. The Union Accelerator was mentioned both by Noah and Rebecca. It took place in Sarajevo, capital of Bosnia, a few months ago. I can't give too many details because I wasn't there. But my understanding of the Union Accelerator is a model that has been introduced recently in EUJS to basically host a location to talk about how a union is organized. You have the people that come from EUJS to specifically say, these are the steps that are needed, this is what we do, this is how we're able to engage. I think it's something that can very much help different communities. Some that are already established need a little bit more help, or some that are starting completely from scratch. We will leave it there when it comes to discussing some of you and the different communities 
species with one exception that we will come to a little bit later. Just for a broad summary of summer you, for a week, a lot of Jewish students and youth were able to meet up in a nice warm, and it was very warm, 37 degrees Celsius for most of that time, so that's 100 Fahrenheit. There were seminars, every night there was a party, some of them were themed by different unions, you had trips that were organised to different places, people were able to organise their own activities. I am very, very proud of the piano jamming sessions that we hosted. I wish that I could show some recordings here, but I'm a bit afraid about copyright. But you can imagine around a grand piano, we had one person playing and then anywhere between 5 to 15 to 20 people singing and really having a great time into the early hours of the morning. The Shabbos services were very nice as well. There was the Orthodox reform and there was a sort of meditation. But it really provided the possibility for everyone to express themselves however they wanted. And I think that although there was a general opposition towards using your electrical devices on Shabbos, obviously people were able to use it if they wanted to. Some of the interviews that we recorded actually were on Shabbos. And yeah, it was a chill time. One part that we haven't discussed yet and that I'm going to move to is the whole decision-making process within the European Union of Jewish students. If I told you what you promised to be true Would you love yourself as much as I love you? Oh, 